If you're new to St. Luke's, we welcome you, and you are welcome wherever you find yourself on your spiritual pilgrimage. We're very happy that you're here. This morning, the first, uh, or, or Christmas Day, we always read the Gospel from John, the introduction. If you want to amaze your friends, you can use the correct technical term and refer to it as the Johannine Prologue. And I'm going to preach about that. I want to say a word about how Anglican Christians have understood the processes of God with regard to salvation. And then I'm going to preach about the four affirmations that I speak of every Christmas. What it is during the Feast of the Incarnation that we affirm. Incarnation means God coming into human flesh. My morals and ethics professor in seminary said incarnation means in the meat. And he's right, if you translate the Latin literally, that's what it means. So we mean somehow that God now has become uh, a human being. And that's an important thing. Father Thomas Keating, as you know, is one of my heroes. And he speaks uh, in his writings of how Jesus now uh, represents God embodied, but more important, the highest and best of what we understand a human being to be. And he speaks about the two, two words that are used in the New Testament to describe the flesh, the incarnation. And one of them is sarks, and the other one is soma. I think Aldous Huxley had something to say about Soma. It was a drug that uh, in his book, Brave New World or something, he, he referred to. So Father Keating says, the Greek New Testament word for flesh is sarx. Sarx means the human condition, the incomplete, unevolved, immature levels of human consciousness. It means human nature in its subjection to sinfulness, Jesus did not merely assume a human body and soul, he assumed the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. And he goes on to say, I, I talk about this a lot, that the, the focus of the Sark's part of our flesh has to is around three important energy centers. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And those three things are necessary to get in balance to be a human being. You never get rid of them. You figure out some way to move through those realities. And while I'm on the subject, by the way, Keating speaks about sinfulness uh, some of you may already know this, but uh, in the New Testament, sin, the word translated into English as sin, hamartia, means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. So if you understand this rather than in some sort of total sense, that somehow uh, often in our life we miss the mark, and it's always possible to hit the mark, right? To live a sober, godly life in ways that are life-giving and important 
And that's what we're called to do. No council has defined salvation for the church. Our communion sits on the fault line between two interpretations of salvation, both of which have scriptural grounding and are present in the church fathers. The first view is salvation is participation in and union with God. Theosis, English we would translate, deification. Saint Athanasius of Alexandria said, uh, "Man became God, God became man that we might become God. Father Thomas Keating says, we are not God, but our true self is God. So one of the things that's part of our self-understanding is this movement towards living into uh, the divine center that's in every human being. The other is salvation viewed as atonement made by Christ for us. The difference is viewing salvation as the world's restoration, while the other is a response to the divine wrath. I don't need to tell you which one I prefer. Right? But both are in Anglicanism, and they're both part of our tradition. And in the medieval period, both of those views were not considered mutually exclusive, but were in some way parallel in our self-understanding. I found a bookmark going through my books, getting ready to retire and putting them all in boxes and everything, and I found a bookmark from the Anglican Digest long ago, and one of the lines in it was, never presume God's mercy. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? But what preceded it was, always remember God's love. And you hear in my preaching that, we, that I believe that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And it is that starting place that gives us the ability, the freedom, and the serenity to be able to look at those aspects of our character that need reform. So it's always important in Christmas when we speak about God becoming a human being that we're a work in progress. Mary Beth Gay read to you from the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's a wonderful passage because it says that Jesus bears the very imprint of God. And the words that are used in the original are the same words that they used in the ancient Near East to refer to some, a minter minting a coin, putting the stamp, the die on the precious metal and hitting it with a hammer, making the impression, the very imprint of God. If God were a human being walking around now, this is what he would be like. That's what everybody who heard him and saw him said. Ultimately, right? <clears throat> and more to the point, they were not watching some tableau. They were given tools they could use. They realized now that they could follow in this footstep and they could understand that Jesus constituted for them a template that they could lay over their own spiritual life and development, influencing their emotional, spiritual, mental, and even physical states.
and that that had transforming power for them. So, John's Gospel, the prologue, we read it uh, on Christmas Day and then the full 18 verses on the first Sunday after Christmas. And in the Johannine prologue, there, he's talking about something that um, may sound a little twilight zony to some, mystical union. John's Gospel is interested in how we understand mystical union with God and how human persons who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life are now able, in a sense, to be identified with him in mystical union. What does it mean? Dr. William Countryman, who was a New Testament professor at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, said that <clears throat> I take mystical union to describe an experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. At one level, this may be an experience of the order of the cosmos and of my place in it, in which case it is called mystical enlightenment. At another level, it may be an experience of full knowledge of another specific being, in which case it is called mystical union. Union may be understood as implying a complete dissolution of the human who enters into it, or may appear as the complete opening of two realities, one into another. One. The opening of two realities, one into another, such that I have the same mediate, unmediated understanding of the other as I do of myself. I've been a pastor for a while and I've actually had people describe this to me. The dean of my seminary many, many years ago said, you know, in your priesthood, you're going to encounter people whose spiritual life is far deeper than your own. And you should not be upset by this or jealous of this you should see how it will point you in a direction that is important and tell us something about God's presence in each other. Mystical union. So the beginning of the gospel speaks about the Christian Dharma. Dharma is one word and it means many, many things and English has the best thing it can do is to say uh, the ordering of the cosmos. So what does it say? In the beginning was the Word with a capital W. In Greek, in the beginning was the Logos, which can mean thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, Proportion, principle, standard. My, my favorite one of those is the organizing principle. How do we understand who we are and what we're supposed to do? So it's the divine light breaking into human consciousness. So we're going to begin to think about what it means uh, to be expressors of the word of God. Excuse me. <coughs>
So I want to talk finally about the four affirmations, if my voice lasts. Every year I speak about these, what the four affirmations are. Just a moment, excuse me. So here they are. Christmas is the affirmation of the goodness of our humanity. Christmas is the affirmation that in Christ we can achieve the highest of our human potential. Christmas is about the affirmation that it is possible to be joyful. And Christmas is the affirmation that Christian people are to be people of peace. You know, one of the ways we live into these affirmations is to participate Henry Chadwick, the great, the great historian of the early church, said, In short, the Christian tradition affirms that humankind is not so good as to need no redemptive grace, nor so bad as to be unable to benefit from divine aid and the deep therapy of sacramental grace. Receiving the Holy Communion, participating in the sacramental life, that that's part of how we understand who we are. So when we say that we affirm the goodness of our humanity, we mean that we are affirming what it tells us in the Bible, and that is that God made everything and it was very good. A lot of us don't believe that we're very good. Maybe even a lot of us have been told by others that we're not very good. And we've been struggling in our life with that whole question, that we're not very good. But the Bible says we're very good, and that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And that what it means when God becomes a human being is that it's the great yes to humanity. Two views about what happened in the Garden of Eden. The first one is that when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden in the story, it was because they blew it. There's no way back. They have completely severed their relationship with God because they believed they were God and God was not God. And so since then, there has been trouble and plenty of it. The other view, which uh, I would say most Anglican Christians understand, is that uh, when we fell in the story, we lost our supernatural endowment. But we still have the ability to know the good. Think about your own life. Most of us actually do know what the right thing to do is. We do. We just don't do it, you know. And our bad behavior is often excused by calling it something else. But when you think about it, if you have the ability to know the good, that means there's a way back. And the way back begins with the acknowledgement that you are unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven. We can achieve the highest <clears throat> of our human potential. And this means that we are made for a purpose, that we are called to respond to being made in God's image, 
and that we accomplish God's work by modeling what it means to be the best human being you can be. The Dalai Lama, many years ago in San Francisco, was interviewed by somebody and said, what is it that you really need to do to get spiritually centered and to know what to do? And he said, it's very important to be a good person. It's very important to be a good person. And this has worked out for most of us in the ordinary commonplace activities of our lives where we are able to bring serenity, clarity, integrity, and generosity to all aspects of our relational life. Most of us live in the quotidian stuff, the everyday stuff. You know? And there are a lot of spiritual writings and traps. Mother Teresa of Avila. If you find yourself in the kitchen amongst the pots and the pans, you're simply going to have to find God in the midst of the pots and the pans. Sometimes we have an overly heroic view of what it means to reach some spiritual centeredness. When, it's, when we say that we affirm that Christians are called to be joyful, you know, it's pretty hard to be joyful in, with what's going on in the world now. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways that we understand joy is not some giddy hilarity. I used to think joy meant like Snoopy in the Peanuts cartoon. You know, some sort of giddy hilarity. You know, I spent a lot of time in my life also confusing joy with euphoria. And they're not the same. Joy is the sure and steady confidence that the conundrums, the uncertainties, the ambiguities of life can and will for each of us come into surer and clearer focus. The problems are not going to go away, but they will appear more manageable and we will be less anxious. And the only way you can do that is to live a life of some intention and some internal self-regulation with regard to your instinctual drives, with regard to understand what you need to do on a daily basis in order to be centered. And that differs between people depending upon their temperament. We affirm that Christian people are about peace, peacemakers. We need a lot of peace now. There's not enough peace. And uh, many people have a variety of solutions. I don't want to get into a sort of catena of the hoary phrases about the necessity of peace. Let's just say that when Jesus speaks about peace on earth, and the biblical writers speak about peace on earth, both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Christian scriptures, they use the word shalom. Shalom means peace. That's what we, how we translate it. But shalom can mean completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation and discord. Where did he get all these things? I got all these things because I went to the Hebrew word for shalom and I went to a dictionary that does the, the biblical words and it said this is what this word 
can mean. So it's a pretty full concept, isn't it? About how we understand peace and its benefits. The shalom of God is a willingness to bring these qualities to our relational life, but also to bring them to bear on our own internal, emotional, and spiritual and physical states, such that we are able to be centered in God's love and care. So as we continue, remember that Christmas is 12 days long. It doesn't end today. Christmas is 12 days long, and you can think about these affirmations. The goodness of our humanity, that we can achieve the highest of our human potential, that it's possible to be joyful, and that we are people of peace. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ since... God is making his appeal through us. God has no other way to do that. And Christmas reminds us that it's up to us. Amen.